0: Welcome to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Sumnick. This episode is an extra special episode close to my heart, not only because it's part of the continuing series on environmental diplomacy, but this is also my Father's Day episode. So, of course, I invited to be my co-host, my very own dad. Hi, dad.
1: Hi, Kelsey. How are you?
0: I'm great. How are you? Are you excited to be on the podcast?
1: Yes, it's great, thanks for inviting me.
0: In honor of Father's Day, I was thinking about our two passions, geology and diplomacy, and I was trying to think of some way we could work together. So I thought we'd try this, creating a podcast episode together. So a huge shout out to all the dads out there. Hope you're having a great day. My dad, Jean, is a feminist who raised me the same as my brother especially to appreciate nature and the earth he's an avid skier and hiker we like to ski and hike together and of course he's a devoted san francisco giants baseball fan but today we're talking to him in his professional capacity as a geologist you are ceo and principal geologist at egs consulting inc what does that mean
1: it's a geoscience consulting firm uh, with a principal interest in geothermal energy. We have worked almost exclusively in the geothermal part of the renewable energy business, and we currently consult to both public and private sector clients who are doing everything from basic exploration uh, to development to the regulation of uh, geothermal resource use.
0: okay, so back it up for us what does
1: geothermal energy mean? Well, geothermal energy involves using the natural heat of the earth for a number of things. Lower temperature hot water can be used for direct use, space heating and cooling, for example. And if temperatures are high enough and the resource is big enough, you can actually use steam or hot water to produce electricity. And geothermal has been a core renewable resource for many decades. Um, Geothermally generated electricity is a a base load electricity source, meaning that it's available all day, every day. The sun isn't always shining and the wind isn't always blowing. So unlike solar and wind renewables, geothermal is always available. And the most important thing about it is that it's a, a renewable energy generation source that fills in that constant energy sort of gap where other intermittent resources can't supply electricity.
0: You primarily work in alternative energy, and that is one segment of what we're discussing in this episode. But before we dig in, can we go a little bit broader? Let's define geosciences. Can you help us understand, Dad, what that means?
1: Oh, it's a very generalized term that's uh, been used recently to cover a whole range of disciplines. Um, Say, for instance, everything from geology to geochemistry, to geophysics, to hydrology and hydrogeology, reservoir engineering, climatology to a certain extent. If it has to do with the earth, then it's considered a geoscience. And even that's a little bit limiting because um, say, for instance, NASA in some recent planetary studies those, those studies are all about applying what we know from our own planet to the rest of the solar system.
0: So to help us understand how this might influence diplomacy, what are some of your favorite examples of the impact of geoscience in international relations?
1: Oh, it would be hard to pick. Um, just focusing on natural resources, energy in particular, Geology has really been at the heart of international politics for almost our entire lifetimes. Think about it. Most of the energy that we use comes from fossil fuels, and most of that was discovered and developed from applying geology. So, Global energy supply has driven diplomatic relationships, national economies, regional politics, global conflicts. Energy supply has been a fundamental part of almost all the wars that have been fought in the past century and It continues to affect, directly affect, international politics today. That's just one topic, though. Um, There are lots of uh, things outside of natural resources, natural disasters, the geologic forces behind those, like earthquakes and tsunamis and volcanic eruptions. can change everything from your flight plans to um, affect the entire climate and studying the geologic record from things like ice cores and lake sediments, that's really the only means we have of evaluating the long-term past climate effects that have shaped and continue to control our environment. That background geology is the only real record that we can rely on to put climate change in some sort of context, some sort of perspective. And, and it's how we look at what might happen in the future
0: just so hard this week with the Paris decision and then everything you say has just so much value.
1: Well, <sighs> um, it's an amazing what you can perpetuate when you decide to ignore the facts. And science, you know, geology is just one science that basically has looked at uh, handling a very complex set of facts from the Earth's system and it's a complex series of feedback loops and interactions that we don't really understand everything about it, which is why it's difficult to project the effects. But what, we, what we've learned over time, especially addressing things like, like climate and climate variations, say in the last, well, I don't know, 10,000 years, basically the, rise, the period of the rise of mankind. Uh, what, what we see from the geologic record and from just even the recent history, is that the climate on our planet is a lot more delicate than we thought it was. And we always think of major huge changes, like I mentioned, volcanic eruptions and things like that. Yeah, sure, those are dramatic changes, but sometimes, sometimes very subtle thresholds can be crossed, and it's almost impossible to work back past that threshold. We just don't understand what those tipping points are unless we consider the geologic record.
0: And that's why it could be crucial if you are thinking of embarking on a career in environmental diplomacy, this work is critical now. And I'm really excited about the panelists that we've chosen to talk to today because they will kind of shed some light on women in geology and how they've built their own careers. but. All three of these women also work in kind of cross-discipline capacities, I would say. What do you think, Dad? I mean, can you just tell listeners a little bit about why we chose these three women?
1: Well, they have a very diverse and varied background in geosciences. Uh, They've done nearly everything in the field from fundamental research and resource exploration to applied diplomacy. So they really offer a, a very broad perspective on how geology applies in our world.
0: Awesome, let's meet them. Okay. First up is Lori Bettison Varga. She is president and director of the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. Hi Lori, welcome. Hi Kelsey, hi Jean, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> we are so excited to have you. So tell us a little bit about where we find you and what you're up to.
2: So, you find me at the Natural History Museum, as you said, I have been here for 20 months. Uh, The Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County has three museums, Uh, the main one in Exposition Park, uh, La Brea Tar Pitson Museum in Hancock Park, and then the William S. Hart Museum out in uh, Newhall. And uh, I think that this uh, museum, uh, everybody should know, is one of the largest in the United States in terms of collections and we are part of an international group of museums that are working together on collections and on science projects, and there's 12 European and North American museums that are in this alliance. We serve 1.3 million visitors a year at the Natural History Museum, and we find that our mission to inspire wonder, discovery, and responsibility for our natural and cultural worlds is particularly important right now at this moment in time. I come to the museum by way of higher education. I was a professor of geology at the College of Worcester in Ohio before going into academic administration at Whitman College, where I was provost, and then most recently, president of Scripps College in Claremont. Uh, so most of my focus has been in hard rock geology and geochemistry, looking at uh, the formation of ore deposits, um, in, for example, the island of Cyprus, and uh, but these days, actually, I'm not much into doing the field work. but I am an administrator uh, really taking to heart uh, my role in facilitating people's work. Uh, and particularly at the Natural History Museum, that mission of uh, educating uh, the public about science. And it's a very exciting time to be in that role and a very uh, important time, as we know.
0: Absolutely. So if any listeners out there find themselves in L.A., stop by to say hi to Lori. Next up is Bridget Aileen at the University of Nevada, Reno. She is director of the Great Basin Center for Geothermal Energy, and she's also associate professor for the Nevada Bureau of Mines and Geology at the McKay School of Earth Sciences and Engineering. Hi, Bridget.
3: Thank you so much, Kelsey. It's wonderful to be on the show. And um, I'm really happy to be here. So thank you for the invitation. Um, Yeah, as you mentioned, so I'm director of the the Great Basin Centre for Geothermal Energy. um, And I've been in this role for just over a year. I think it's about 14 months. Um, And I'm also an associate professor. So um, I'm working for, um, for the Nevada Bureau of Mines and Geology which is actually the, the Nevada State Geological Survey. Um, and in, in Nevada, um, our, our state survey is part of the university. So we are part of the University of Nevada, Reno. Um, and I, I'm really enjoying the role so far. I, I moved here from Australia. Um, I was working for the Australian government for uh, 10 years and working in geoscience. So I've always been working in geology in some way. Um, and prior to that, you know, I was um, at school. You know, I had a PhD um, and a bachelor degree, um, which were, you know, broadly in, in geology and earth science. Um, but my my current focus now, though, is is geothermal energy. And I've been working in geothermal for quite a while, and I'm really passionate about geothermal. It's it's renewable energy um and we find it you know so many places around the world and being in reno is is wonderful because we have so many resources in in the great basin region um and in the western u.s more broadly so um so my work really is um, a combination of um kind of outreach through my role as director of the center um and educating the the public about geothermal and what it is and where we find it and why we care about it. Um, I also do research, um, so a big, big question for Geothermal, you know, is where do we find new new resources and how can we find them more economically um, and reduce the risks to actually drill for these resources um, and also teach. So I teach classes here at the university and supervise students. So I have quite a broad, a broad range of activities, which is Um, proving um, interesting, and um, I'm really enjoying it so far.
0: Fantastic. Yes, I am really looking forward to gaining insight from your work on alternative energy and the impact that it has in in international relations. Great. And speaking of students, our final guest is Melody Brown-Birkins. She is Associate Director of the John Sloan Dickey Center for International Understanding and an Adjunct Professor of Environmental Studies. She's also Chair for the U.S. National Committee for the Geological Sciences. Hi, Melody.
4: Oh, hi, Kelsey. And hi, Jean. Wonderful to be here with both of you and both Bridget and Lori.
0: So tell us, where do we find you? What have you been up to?
4: Well I you can find me at Dartmouth College where I am both I serve both in a managing directorship of the uh, our international program sending students around the world bringing the world to students and faculty here on campus with programming with guest guest lectures with discussions about topics of the day in international uh, affairs I'm also an adjunct professor in environmental studies here and I actually got my graduate degree long ago from here in earth sciences and environmental studies, so way back in the old, uh, interdisciplinary way back in the nineties. And then, so I teach, I teach students science policy and diplomacy, which is a new uh, uh, course I created and has doubled in its first two years. Um, It's very uh, experiential, the students uh, role play in various, uh, in ways of interacting in the different science technology policy um, Issues of the day, they learn about power structures, about how you get good ideas to political uh, influence makers in short but credible, uh, peer reviewed, (laughs) highly uh, important that these are very strong facts to our political leaders. So that's the course that I teach and it's done done quite well. Um, Internationally, yes, I'm I'm the chair of the U.S. National Committee for the Geological Sciences and people may not know there are these national committees to sciences uh, managed by the U.S. National Academies of science, engineering, and math. Um, this is one of many, uh, one of 17, I believe, that are managed there in different science fields. And we have delegations of U.S. geoscientists that go to uh, international assemblies about the geosciences, about, um, about uh, governance of the geosciences, standards for geosciences. And I led uh, the first almost all women, women majority uh, 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 delegation of U.S. women geoscientists to the South African General Assembly um, last summer. So I do. I just got back from Paris, where I'm also working on science policy and diplomacy, connecting um, the International Council of Science. There's a planned merger of the International Council of Science with the International Social Science Council. Um, so I'm part of that, with also with the National Academies, seeing the U.S. voice and trying to merge those two ideas. A uh, uh, vote. On that merger, will be in Taipei, and I'll be on the US delegation. So, I think both of geology, um, geosciences, environmental sciences, and I also work internationally on trying to get greater science collaboration. Um, and just in two weeks, I'll also have a, a workshop here for US and Canadian students on science policy and diplomacy in the Arctic, as that's a big region internationally and for the US. And we will be doing a model Arctic council with my colleagues from University of Alaska Fairbanks, which is similar to a model UN, but about the governance of the future of the Arctic.
0: Wow, this is amazing. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing, um, because I think what I also love about some of the examples of your work is that it took a leading lady to see the need and then create some resources to, to fill that need.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, I'm always curious about motivation, uh, and what what got you interested in in geosciences? Can you can you tell us something, Lori, about what uh, what got you interested in earth science?
2: Oh yeah, very clearly. So I grew up in Long Beach, California, and uh, as a high school student, uh, I was yeah, you know, I actually was pretty afraid of earthquakes. So I took a course between my junior and senior year. Uh, at Long Beach City College, it was uh, you know for rising seniors, uh, and it was called Earthquake Studies, and we did a lot of field trips. Uh, the professor was amazing. We went out in the field uh, many times. Uh, went up to visit UC Santa Barbara and uh, went out with folks there, and I just fell in love with with the science. And so, as a senior in high school, I was specifically looking at geology undergraduate programs, and ended up at UC Santa Barbara. Of course, right, uh, and kept on with that kind of passion, uh, focusing on uh, hydrothermal vent systems, which were, you know, just newly discovered. As I watched a Nova program in 1979 on those, uh, as a senior in high school, and so that kind of got me into that whole mode of uh, thinking about plumbing systems and the oceans, and carried all the way through to my PhD with that particular kind of love and inspiration.
1: That Nova was about the first, uh, the first um, uh, specific, the Pacific spreading center dives, wasn't it?
2: That's right. Yep. With uh, let's see, Ken McDonald and I think John Delaney might have been on that Nova episode too. But I know Ken McDonald was. So yes, yeah. very much about the yeah. first early
1: discoveries of that. John Delaney was my my professor for petrography and petrology at Arizona. So
0: wow! wow how cool.
1: I always it was always amazing because he's he's like about six foot seven. I don't know how he would fit in a, a, a submersible.
2: Yeah, especially Alvin, right, Gene? I mean Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Same idea, Melody. What what motivated you to get involved in the Earth Sciences?
4: Um, well, you know, it it was similar that it was just really good really good teachers and something just clicked. I actually thought I was going to be a, uh, I was pre-med at Yale University and it was the geology program that I think I took as an elective that I had a professor, Brian Skinner, who is uh, kind of a legend and just, you know, here was this person I'd seen his name on books and he was just, Uh, uh, he taught the intro geology course and took us all in a van outside of the city. I'd grown up in Fairbanks, Alaska, and in some parts of California. New Haven, Connecticut was a big city for me. And we got to go in a van and go out in the Connecticut countryside and look at rocks and draw rocks. There was art. It was, it was, you know, group dynamics. It, we were bouncing ideas off of each other. And this was not my normal class that I had everywhere else. And I absolutely fell in love with the, the style of teaching, the getting out in the field together, working as a, as a you know, as a collaborative group. Um, and that just stuck. And all of a sudden my major became geology and my graduate thinking became geology. And uh, I stuck with it. It's been absolutely fantastic.
1: Yeah, I know for me, I I started out thinking that I wanted to be a chemist and uh the best thing that ever happened to me is my faculty advisor said I should take this class in mineralogy and getting out in the field and seeing yeah. things. The geologists the geologists were having a lot more fun.
4: They had a lot we had we had a lot of fun. Yes, we did.
1: So Bridget same question. What what was your motivation?
4: Well,
3: I I feel like I discovered geology or earth sciences really young. I think I was probably like, you know, 7 or 8 and I grew up in New Zealand I'm from New Zealand and grew up in rural uh, Hawke's Bay which is um, kind of a coastal area on the east coast of the North Island of New Zealand and on that particular area there are a lot of limestones and um, on, a, on a property where my parents lived um, there were some limestones and when I was a kid I'd bring home some of these kind of fossils and um and rock samples home to mum and dad and you know show them what I had and um and they I guess recognized my interest and encouraged me to you know kind of pursue that. So my, my dad's an engineer um and so he was he was pretty sciencey as well. Um, but you know I kind of you know we had a lot of outdoor trips as kids. My sister and I would you know go out camping with my dad and my mum and hiking and so we kind of grew up in the outdoors. And you know there's a lot of outdoors in New Zealand, and um a lot of active um processes that are happening so um that was kind of a start for me and you know so I was reading books from the public library um we weren't really doing you know any kind of geology at you know at um primary school, but at high school, I did all the sciences you know biology chemistry physics um and again, there still wasn't really like a geology. Focused um, course, yet there was maybe a small module in the general science um, kind of course, but I still knew that that was what I wanted to do and um, by the time I was finishing my high school and about to go to university i I knew I thought yep that's what I want to do and um and I never looked back so that was um, I did my undergraduate in, in at Victoria University in Wellington in new Zealand, um, and there's a great a great program there and wonderful field trips to, you know, head out into the countryside to map and understand what was going on. Um, it's also the home of the Antarctic Centre. And it was a very strong program there to do research in Antarctica uh, in, the, in, in the New Zealand dependency, which is the Ross, Ross dependency um, with the Scott base, which is the New Zealand Antarctic base. Um, and so through my undergraduate, I finished my bachelor's and did an honours honors degree and got into um, paleoclimate um, and was lucky to get down to Antarctica for my thesis kind of work, which was amazing. Um, so, yeah, so it's been a long road, you know, and I, and, and since then, I've just had some incredible opportunities to, to travel to, you know, pretty exotic locations like Mongolia and India. And I've been back to Antarctica again for another different study and, um, and obviously, the US has been amazing to be here too, and just see this wonderful landscape um, that we have in the in the US. Um, so, I've had a pretty, you know, uh, a long-standing passion for for geology and earth science, you know. But um, there are so many options as to how you apply that. You know, you don't have to just be a professor, or you know, there's there's so many. Um, opportunities for different types of jobs that you can work in that enable you to have that kind of career.
1: Yeah, we talked about that a little bit in in my introduction. It's just it's such a, a broad range of disciplines and a broad range of applications, and it's you know so many things that it applies to. Um, just an open question for all three of you: um, What sort of obstacles did you face as a woman pursuing a career in geosciences? I mean it it hasn't always been, um, you know, a, a woman-friendly career. It was always looked at when I was getting into it as being kind of like a a, a man's job. So uh, I'm interested.
4: Um, so this is Melody. I would say uh, I remember hearing early on as I was a geologist that uh, in some places, and I believe it was Australia, and I'm sure it's not no longer the case, that women weren't allowed in mines it was uh like with submarines it was considered uh unlucky so yes and i remember being also waved off of a career in paleontology because they didn't really think i just remember being waved off and feeling like this was odd because i knew a lot of young men were doing it um so i think there were some presumptions that women didn't necessarily uh, young women didn't necessarily, this wasn't necessarily the career for them early on. It was when I went to field camps where I saw more women and saw women in uh, teaching that all of a sudden I realized I could do this too, and I could do very well in it.
2: You know, I, I would say, Jean, you're right, that there's certainly that kind of sense about it. And as as Melody said, you you know, as a woman geoscientist, you, you all of us have heard uh, different examples of um, you know why women shouldn't be doing this. Uh, like I can remember my first job interview and the person who was interviewing me said, well, you know, this is really tough stuff. And I don't think you really want to do it. Um, and that was before I went on for my master's. But I would say this, that I think the important aspect to probably all successful women who've gone on through their, you know, all the way through to graduate work and stayed in the field it's a combination of not just seeing women do it, but really strong male mentors. And I think I would just say that it really is incumbent upon uh, both men and women to support and promote uh, all, actually all students, but to really ensure that all students are getting equal support through the process. We know there's a leaky pipeline from uh, bachelors to masters to PhD, and there's a leaky pipeline from uh, professors, uh, women not going all the way through the tenure process. Uh, so we, we really need everybody
3: supporting uh, women geoscientists. I agree. I absolutely agree too, Laurie. Um, and I think you know, in my my personal experience, I I don't feel like I had a lot of obstacles. Honestly, um, I didn't see any that were that were particularly kind of negative. Um, and you know, p- perhaps it's a, a generational thing too. Um, but I certainly notice, and the numbers don't lie. Like in the geothermal sector, for example, um, I'm actually part of an organisation called Wing. It's Women in Geothermal, um, which which began in New Zealand, actually, and is now there are now global kind of Wing um, kind of sub headquarters around the world, and Wing USA is just kind of getting started now. Um, and the goal for that is to try and encourage women and. Um, you know, kind of get more opportunities for women and um, more equality uh, in the sector because, you know, even at the the big geothermal conferences in the U.S. that we have, only about 25% of attendees are women. You know, so um, there's, there, there clearly is a, a disparity, and you know that's not just unique to you know geosciences, but kind of STEM more broadly. Um, you know, and so there's all kinds of things there that affect that, but um, there are some programs now that you know we're trying to address that, and I think the the idea of having kind of champions and mentors who who support women um, are are important for for any career for that matter, but I think having you know to actually kind of have that cultural change, it's responsibility of both men and women. It's not just women trying to make this change. It has to be a cultural change as well. And uh, I think it's happening, you know, it's happening. It's gonna take a while before we we have, you know, 50-50, but um, we're on the way. So that's exciting. You know, yeah.
2: and I, I, I'd love to add in here too, as we think about, it, of course, women geoscientists, so the percentages are pretty, uh, pretty small in comparison to other scientific fields. I think we're along the lines of computer science, but uh, we also have to think about underrepresented minorities. So it's uh, an area, I think, that ha- we also have a lot of work to do.
0: Agreed. And especially when you're bringing science into diplomacy, the more diverse voices, the better, in my opinion. That will lead to even better policy making because you're taking into account diverse perspectives so here we're talking about building relationships between genders now i'm interested about working at the crossroads of natural sciences and social sciences (laughs) so let's get into the international relations of this one thing my dad and i were discussing before meeting with you ladies is fascinating examples of where the geosciences have influenced International relations or diplomacy. What are your own favorite stories or case studies of this?
3: Well, I think there are, there are quite a few examples, so it's hard to point to one, but um, I think the, the three areas where international relations um, you know, are linked with the geosciences are in the natural hazard space, uh, looking at energy resources, energy and kind of groundwater, uh, and climate research. The the natural hazard one, I think, particularly appeals to me, um, having worked for the Australian government for uh, almost 10 years prior to my role here in Reno. um, I was with with, uh, Geoscience Australia um, shortly after the the Boxing Day tsunami happened. So back in December 2004, um, there was the very large tsunami in the Indian Ocean um, just off the coast of Sumatra. uh, a lot of lives were lost um, because a you know a very very large tsunami um, essentially devastated a large part of Indonesia, uh, as well as parts of like Sri Lanka, um, Indian coastline, and the effects obviously were felt as far as way as um, East Africa as well and the northern coast of Australia. And after that event, uh, a number of nations um, worked together. I think including the the US, Japan. Um, and, and the United Nations as well were involved, I believe, and Australia, um, and you know, set up an uh, Indian Ocean tsunami warning system, so that for future earthquakes on that that on that subduction zone that you know pretty much tracks the whole coastline of Indonesia um, may actually have some warning for future tsunamis. And of course, there was another tsunami on that same kind of trench um, a couple of years ago. Um, that had less loss of life because they did have some warning. Um, but that particular kind of natural hazard um, uh, opportunity, I suppose, did encourage international relations and, you know, to actually help some of those developing countries um, cope with their natural hazards. It's really kind of a, a duty um, as, as good citizens of the world to, um, you know, try and work with these countries and help them manage those hazards.
4: One of the uh, things that actually made me realize that there was this thing out there called um, science diplomacy that caught my fancy um, back in the in the early 2000s was when I was um, asked to be a part of the uh, U.S. National Committee for the Geosciences, when I first was asked by the National Academies to join, um, our first, we had a, a meeting, and we went to the vulga, uh, got, Went to see out in Portland the volcano da- disaster assistance program with the United States Geological Survey, and this program is a is a cooperative partnership between USAID and the Foreign Disaster Assistance Pro Office and the USGS, the US Geological Survey, that um, is invited to different countries to reduce their volcanic risk and develop. Um, uh, developing nations give them some support in developing. Uh, um, uh, resilience to volcanic hazards. And what I loved about the program was it, was it was geologists who were trained in international affairs and diplomacy to not be coming in, swooping in and saving the day or telling them telling uh, local folks what, uh, and local ministries and governments what the U.S. wanted them to do. This was diplomacy where the scientists came in with their expertise, worked with the local governments, worked with the local geologists, worked with the local scientists, Help them uh, learn from them about what was going on, and then in the background supplied them with what they needed for long term monitoring of volcanics or other natural hazards that uh, volcanoes or other natural hazards to give them the ability to develop the resilience themselves and then the us 's power here was you know we have a lot of observations and, and techno equipment. we could be sort of an early warning system with a lot of uh, our you know, international um, networks. But these small developing nations, now having the United States come in and provide them and, and work with them and learn from them, now was able to have this back and forth uh, relationship with the volcanic the volcano disaster assistance program at the u s g s to me, this was the height of science diplomacy. this was us helping it was soft power us working with other countries, learning from them. Um, helping with expertise, learning from their expertise, things that we could bring back to our U.S. volcanic hazards programs. And I just fell in love with this idea that scientists were part of connecting the world in peace with more international scientific collaboration, learning from each other, and then now that I'm at Dartmouth, helping students to find these kinds of opportunities to be part of those international connections.
1: Yeah, in my experience it was extremely effective. Um during the Mount Pinatubo eruption in the Philippines, I was still working for Unical Geothermal at the time and they had a, you know, a number of interests in the Philippines, but it was amazing. It it essentially it essentially built the Philippine Volcanologic Institute within months.
0: For me too, I remember when there was the volcanic eruption in Iceland that essentially stopped travel and uh diplomatic travel to a huge event I mean, in the case of the Earth, sometimes it will not stop what it's doing just because we have certain politics. And I think <laughs> geologists have a huge role to play that we need to welcome the sciences in more to help us understand. I mean, essentially, be you, you all are translators for the Earth to help us understand the Earth, in, in my opinion. And we're getting close to climate
4: issues too yes
2: (laughs) yes indeed i was just thinking about that as as uh, part of this work that we're doing with museums in europe is trying to impress upon uh, the need for understanding uh, biodiversity loss and it's hard right because i think people have some sense that they understand that there's loss Uh, you know europeans i don't think clearly we know now don't question much what's happening but in the US, I think it's really increasingly incumbent upon us to think about this as a global system and yeah. that we can actually record what's happening and it's happening at a much faster pace than what anybody thought. Um, you know, I think about Al Gore sitting on a glacier talking about it being gone by 2030 and it's actually going to be gone by 2020. I just feel like the the museum world is starting to really see the responsibility we have in articulating the value of our collections holistically around the globe as a record of uh, the biodiversity and how it's changed, particularly in the last
4: hundred years as we've entered into the Anthropocene. And I wanna say as what I enjoy is is really here in um, the university system as you, as both Lori and, and Bridget know too, is that we can also show the next generation, young men and young women that this connection of science and policy um, to actually affect change and create collaborations to, for the benefit of our global society is possible. And that's really what's wonderful to see them, Scient- young scientists who say, wait, I can be involved in international policy too, or you know, policy young policy government uh, majors recognizing that science and technology are important to their future as well.
1: You see that sometimes it's an uphill struggle to convince people that they aren't disconnected from nature. I mean, a lot of our society... And a lot of our politics seems to think that we just operated in a a sort of independent bubble.
2: Yeah, you know, Gene, I'm glad you raised that because at the Natural History Museum, we have uh, an urban nature research center. And five years ago, they ripped out the the, uh, parking lot in the front of the building, the north side of the building and put in a beautiful nature garden. And the whole purpose is to be not just a museum of natural history, but a museum of living nature. And we have a lot of programs, citizen science programs. Uh, We do this with school kids all the way to, you know, anybody, any resident in the county can submit information into a variety of our research programs so that uh, they're partners in understanding, helping us understand and map the biodiversity of L.A. County. You know, we can't get into people's backyards. So we need people to help us make those observations. And we've even launched uh, a city nature challenge because we know over 50 percent of the world's populations are in cities now. Um, and this year there were 16 cities in the U.S. that took place in this with us. We launched it last year with Cal Academy, and next year it's going to be a global uh, city nature challenge. So I think you're right. I think it's a critical aspect of educating our young people today as well as, you know, the adults uh, who are living in these environments that we are a part of nature.
1: An open question to everyone. What would you say to someone with a non-technical background to convince them that, the value of applied geoscience thinking or applied science. What would what would uh, what would you say to convince them of the inherent worth of of the sciences,
0: especially the international policy community? What do they need to hear to integrate more scientific opinions?
3: Well, I, I think the the core of of you know any science is really that that search for knowledge. You know, it's knowledge seeking and um, using. You know, trying to uncover. You know fact to help you make better decisions you know especially for for policy and um, you know it's important to have that appreciation for you know for for geosciences more specifically, I think because everything around us is is based on the geosciences, and most things you know that are around you in your room right now came from under the ground, you know whether it's um, products that were derived from petroleum. Um, so obviously we, everyone knows that petroleum is used to make gasoline so you can drive your car around. But everything else like makeup, plastics, you know, clothing, toothbrushes, um, there are so many products that also get derived from, from petroleum and fossil fuels. Um, also mining, you know, our mobile phones have about 40 elements in them. And these come from mining various deposits underground. Um, so our, our modern way of life in our society is, you know, a hundred percent dependent on things that we extract from the subsurface, even, even like clean energy, like solar, solar PV, you know, solar PV, you think, well, okay, it's, it is renewable. Absolutely. But to make the solar PV panels, you still need to extract uh, materials from, from underground. Um, there's some particular, um, elements and, and solar PV panels that we have to mine um, and same with wind turbines and so really I guess what I'm trying to say is you know geosciences underpin everything around us you know and so you could say you're not a scientist and that it's not so important but really it is it's you know it's it's critical to our way of life and our ability to actually um, progress and advance and you know to, to create options to, to, to manage climate change or um, reduce poverty or, you know, have um, fresh water. Everything revolves around having, you know, geoscience as the core, I think. Um,
2: mm-hmm. Well, Bridget just gave a, a really great, I think, s- summary statement for for everyone. I think I would take a uh, step back and say just for the community at large, I would hope that people would understand uh, what really um, scientific thinking does in a larger um, scale in terms of what's a theory as opposed to what's an opinion. You know, just trying to help people understand that when, when we talk about scientific theories, that we're talking about things that have substantial evidence and fact behind them, that these are not just opinions. And I really believe strongly that as we're going out uh, talking about science in general, uh, this conversation around what's a fact, what's not a fact, what's opinion, what's, uh, what's a, what does it mean to, to talk about, you know, 98% of the world's scientists understanding the facts behind climate change and, and not accepting uh, what I see is this, this dialogue around, uh, uh, you know, well, that's your opinion, here's my opinion. Um, I think it's really critical in the policy arena that people reflect on all of the work that goes uh, uh, behind the scenes in developing uh, these these theories and, and the scientific understanding uh, that generates good policy, uh, that it's not just one person and one idea that makes it what it is.
4: And uh, this is Melody. I would say I would uh, reiterate both those things. Um, Everything that uh, Bridget mentioned was the core reasons of geosciences and everything that Laurie just mentioned is the the larger context of of science informing, good, credible, uh, consensus science um, in the policy discussions, in the diplomacy discussions for the future of our world and our society is absolutely critical. I would say, though, that... Convincing people is always a challenge. Um, people need to see your value, so I always put it out to the scientific community too, as i'm sure my colleagues do. What are we doing to make sure that we're communicating in a way that the policymakers find value and understanding of why we why scientists science and scientists should be at these tables and bringing these opinions because um we can't just yell louder or say, "Listen to us." We do have to be, um, and I know, you know, things like uh, working in a museum and working with uh, with the community. That's the way to open it up and open up the wonder. And we have to do more of that in the scientific community. Open up our world to policymakers, to the communities, so that they feel comfortable and want us at the table because the knowledge is really critical, and our learning from those communities is also. Critical. We can't we can't isolate ourselves and do our theories. We have to be out there working to communicate and be part of the policy making of the future.
2: Yeah, I agree, Melody, and I really think it's uh, it's important for scientists to have an understanding of what tools they can use, what language they can use to connect with the public, because it is often. Uh, that, that's the barrier, right, is, is that scientists have this very high level of understanding and they, uh, you know, we aren't always as um, understanding of where the public is coming from. They don't want to be hit over the head. So how do you bring them into a conversation? How do you bring folks into an understanding of what we know and why we know it in a way that's very approachable and not all, you know, doom is gloom? How do we see it as also crafting solutions?
1: And yeah. and is it also a little bit of burden on scientists to be a little bit more a little bit better communicators? Because <laughs> yes. the way I yes. perceive it, a lot of science is kind of yes. like through the facts, isn't it obvious? Yes. And that's the world that we work <laughs> yes. in, but that isn't necessarily the world as it is outside. And so and so no, being it, able to 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 lay out the facts isn't sufficient anymore. You have to be sure that everybody understands what they mean.
2: The public, the general public responds well to stories. So how do they, yes. how do we make it relevant to them through stories? That's why I love what we're doing at the museum. It's how do we make it relevant to them as they come in and see this is a place where they can find the information accessible and then help they help, you know, they, they it helps them learn uh about the work that we're doing so that they can interpret it for themselves and talk about it with their friends and
4: family.
1: Yeah, I've I've always looked at a museum like yours as being a storehouse of concrete examples. It's just just amazing.
4: And very inviting and very welcoming and thinking about how the public and 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 policy this is the same for policy makers commu- and communication needs to be tailored to uh, the folks you're trying to reach, um, influence. Um, and, uh, you know, scientists need to understand they don't need to be political. They just need to understand it may be a different way of speaking um, to catch attention and be relevant. And one thing I love about the geosciences is the geosciences geoscientists, know how to do this we, we tell stories we tell stories about the earth and we can tell stories about the earth for billions of years or hundreds of thousands of years or the last you know ten thousand years and we can make it relevant to students we can make it relevant to geologists we can make it relevant to businesses so we need to think about how we do that and because it is as, as uh, you know Bridget mentioned, the geosciences are just core to the future of our planet. they help tell the story so I, I do think this is a key piece, and um, I think all three of us are Sounds like we're quite united. All five of us here are quite united on this one.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, this is amazing because every single thing each of you has said to me, listeners out there are realizing that this is where we can get to work and where we can be helpful and contribute to this journey. So, final question for you ladies closing words of wisdom. What advice would you give to young women out there that are interested in following in your footsteps I would
2: say to think outside the box there are a lot of different ways to pursue your passion uh, once you've got um, your your background and your skill set and your tools um, just think broadly about what you can you can do with those and so you know I think for For example, a faculty member, it's easy to think that's kind of your pathway. And some people stay with that pathway because they genuinely love every aspect of their faculty lives. And other people don't think about what other opportunities they might have uh, beyond that faculty life um, to to, to influence uh, the public, for example, if that's their desire. So I just think expanding uh, your horizons and thinking about the way that you can Uh, Pursue your dreams. And the other key piece of advice that I always take to heart is if someone asks you or suggests that you put your name in the hat for some position, that you don't second guess yourself, that you actually assume that they're asking you because they see something in you that means that you should be considered for the job. I think too often women step back and say, well, I haven't done X, Y, or Z, so I couldn't possibly get that position. And I, it's clearly with Bridget and Melody here online with me, uh, they can attest to the same thing, that uh, you need to put yourself out there and say, yes, uh, take the risk, put your name in the hat. And if you get offered the job, uh, say yes again, because you can do it.
3: Yeah, I, I just like to echo what Laurie said. I think. Um, be be brave and be courageous and you know have a go you know there's an opportunity that presents itself and you know if it looks like it may be you know there perhaps are five criteria for the job you know and i think women have a tendency to say oh i can do three out of the five but not all five so i won't apply you know which men don't think like that men think probably they could do one of the five they'll apply um exactly
0: yes
3: (laughs) have have a go put yourself out there because what's the worst that could happen you know and um I think part of that um kind of journey is find find mentors um to support you and give you some guidance and also champions within your your workplace so wherever you are working I think it's important to to have someone who's who's not a mentor but who is your champion you know so what kind of help you move forward and be kind of keeping a, a bit of an eye out for you as well. So you're not just on your own, kind of floating around, wondering, you know, how you're actually going to move forward. Um, and I think the other thing for me is, yeah, be open to opportunities, um, because you never know where they might lead. You know, like my career path has been um, quite, you know, quite interesting and I never would have forecast that I'd be working in Reno, uh, directing the centre here and working as a professor, like even five years ago, that would not have been in my radar as something that I'd be doing. Um, and so I think be open to opportunities and, um, and give, give stuff a go because what's the worst that could happen? Um, so <laughs> believe, I believe in yourself and yep, have a go.
4: And um, I echoing both, uh, uh, both Bridget and Laurie, but I will say, especially the the champions finding uh, men and women who uh, are always in your corner, and when you, you don 't be afraid to fail they 'll be there too. make sure those people are people who care about you, no matter where you 're going um, so i 've found those those have been incredibly helpful. I will say also, even for young women and men, uh, but um, think about the next generation yourself. think about as you 're a young woman, who can you help support? Can you reach back into k through twelve? Um, can you look at uh, young women in your community and it it 's really helpful to be not only find mentors and champions, but to be one yourself, it teaches you a lot. And then last but not least, I would say, I tell this to my students, on issues of science policy and diplomacy and the geosciences and all the sciences, it's still so young. Um, we don't know. We've obviously haven't figured it out because we still have huge challenges ahead of us and our our globe needs help. Um, If we haven't figured out, we need the next generation. Um, We need them to help us figure it out, to figure out what these fields look like of the intersections of science, technology, policy, and diplomacy. So we're just thinking about it, doing some things that we can, but for a future sustainable planet, we need a next generation to put their minds to it as well.
1: And as the sole male on the panel, I'll chime in and say that we're not going to meet those kinds of challenges effectively if we're ignoring 50% of the population. And I think having women involved is, is a great, great factor.
0: Thanks for listening to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. The theme song for this podcast. Is Misty Moses by the musicians Rodrigo y Gabriela. A very special thanks to Rubyworks Records in Dublin for allowing use of this song for educational purposes. For more information, check out theforeignpolicyproject.org. And thanks for listening.
1: One sec, Dad. You're gonna edit this, right?
0: Oh, totally.
1: (laughs) We can redo this. This (laughs) intro. This is kind of like all over the all over the map
0: and mapping is part of ge- of geology <laughs> right <laughs> it's
1: still part of geology
0: dun, dun, dun.